Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. We've had some previous episodes and previous discussions about issues of some divisions and inequities amongst different groups of people within the US, and these definitely apply to other places. The common phrase used is diversity, equity, and inclusion. However, as we've heard from some of our previous guests, some people prefer to leave off the word diversity. Others prefer to add a word belonging or something of a similar context. Either way, it's on a lot of people's mind. People want to genuinely feel like they belong and have the opportunity to go for the passions that they have. I don't know all the answers to the questions, but two things are apparent from the conversations I've had, as well as the observations I see, is that one, the way we've been approaching the subject for the past 20, 50 years has not been working. We are still grappling with a lot of the same issues we had at the beginning of these pursuits, and a lot of people are kind of grumpier about it now. Number two, it seems apparent to me that one of the answers to these issues is that we need to talk, we need to listen, we need to communicate, and we need to get to know one another. It's hard to hate a group of people when you have several quality contacts, good relationships, and good friends among them. So it's a good idea to get as many perspectives as we possibly can. And here to provide another perspective on the issue, my guest today, James Foy, who is the Hispanics and Tech founder, as well as an advocate for the Hispanic entrepreneurial community. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you so much. So let's begin with a little background information for those that may not be aware of. First of all, within Colorado, as well as within the U.S. as a whole, what percentage of the population is Hispanic? I think nationally, Colorado is fairly close to being mirror. I think Colorado statewide, I saw was 22, but there's always because of our immigrant community that's underreported. And I think the country also mirrors that. But let me also bring up a point. Here in Denver, where we met, we're 30%. 30% of Denver. 30% of Denver. Anywhere from 40 to 60% need to get of like the DPS school children. Oh, wow. Okay. So the younger generation is pretty much half Hispanic. Now, does that include, because there's been more and more people of mixed race as intermarriage has happened a lot more frequently. Does that include a lot of these mixed race communities as well? Or Well, isn't Foy the most Hispanic sounding name you've ever heard? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't going to comment on that because anyone can have any last name. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. So the biggest soon will be Hispanic. Like in statewide, the nearest group I think it's Asians. I know Black African Americans are about four percent of statewide. Asians are five to maybe right around, but nobody else comes close to Hispanics. But if you're looking at the rate of change, really the fastest growing by percentage are people like me who are mixed, who are one or more. And Hispanic, there's a big long. We can go into the anecdotal stories about. I could go back a hundred years from when my grandmother moved from New Mexico to here. I was. One place she was white, here she was Hispanic, too. So, I mean, the term is very nebulous. I think it also comes from the 70s and 80s when Hispanic was being reported. But to your point is people have mixed. They're experiencing the highest rate of change. Chances are five, 10 years from now, you're more likely to run into a Joe Smith that might be white and Hispanic or white and Asian or white and black. And you'll never know it at times. So this increase in mixed race population, do you feel like this is actually going to be a positive for some of the issues that we kind of begun discussing with some of the divisions and some of the inequities that people observe between different communities? Yes and no. Uh, Short-term versus long-term. 
genetic diversity on any level genetics is always good because it's good to have a bigger assortment long-term 110 percent short-term it's going to be hard sorry i'm getting emotional about this being mixed is a very unique perspective first of all i need to give my parents credit i'm a little bit older my parents met and married in Colorado Springs in 1965. Okay. So at the height of the civil rights movement, my dad, an Irish mix, married a very light Latina in the height of the civil rights movements. What we're seeing now is nothing compared to them. Yeah. So I got to give my parents credit because I lost my father a long time ago. And I never got a chance to learn my father's perspective of what it was like to step outside the boxes. I respect my father more than I can really say for that. Mm -hmm. Going back to where we're at right now, everybody I talk to mixed, there's one consistency. This is not reported in the news. If you're being true to both sides, you can't claim one without the other. I can't claim Irish without claiming Mexican. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can't. What am I dishonoring my father's name? Or am I, well, I dishonored the family I actually knew growing up. So it's a delicate dance. Like in my case, I'm never dark enough, but I'm never really white enough for both sides. So in the short term, and our national leaders do us no favors on this. For the short term, it's going to be beyond hard. It's challenging. For people to change, it's <laughs> it's bloody. And I hate using that term, but it's... It can become that way. Figuratively, hopefully not literally. I've had this conversation four times today. Everybody looks at each other and says, yeah, it's tough. And it's, I probably had a thousand plus of these conversations in my life. I kid you not. <laughs> and I go down and we test it, but there's also a unity that happens. So I mentioned when it's long-term, when it's more shared, even though it's like Asian, black, and Hispanic is very different. But when you're mixed, there's also different ties that bind. And as the society becomes more mixed, yes, it will be a more common narrative, but it will be a lot of growing pains before then. So we've had a lot of discussions around issues of race, especially starting last summer with some of the racial-related protests. One thing I'm wondering is, as we're trying to hear other perspectives, do you feel that the mixed-race perspective is the voice is being heard, is getting out there? People of mixed race are getting their perspective heard by the general population in this general discussion that we're having right now? No, absolutely not. Because... Each culture approaches things very differently. Some of the narratives you hear, my culture agrees with, and I guarantee you some of them, they don't. Mm -hmm. The mixed, you're not hearing a lot of things. So a little bit about my background. I'm close to law enforcement. I will not deny it. So I grew up in a very rural redneck town, 40 miles of Kansas, 80 miles from Oklahoma. My family experienced redlining. So redlining happened where there was a line of demarcation. One side was white. The other side was an unwanted minority. It could, at times it was Irish. At times it was Polish. Probably the teens and 20s of the previous century. And later on, it was mainly people of color. So Hispanics, Blacks, Asians. For context of Denver, Five Points was where some of the redlining happened. The North side is like where it happened. Each culture deals with it differently. When it comes down to mixed They're not here because since we know what both sides, I'm close to law enforcement. Like I was saying, my great uncle, my first cousin, once removed, was chief of police in my hometown. Oh, wow. This is the early 80s, very redneck, very racist town. His father worked the fields. 
His great grandfather came up from Spain in Mexico. His grandmother was very, very dark. For him to be a police officer in that town, he see the hell. Ben was very respected. He worked 50 years in law enforcement. I was brought up differently when it comes down to law enforcement. You talk to them with respect, you know your rights, and you make sure they don't do anything. But you also don't put yourself in a stupid situation. At least for my Hispanic community, maybe not in Generation Z, but I still see in Generation Y and forward, that's a common thing. So, yes, it's not being heard. And also, there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily in the mainstream media that people just don't get to hear. So, sorry, long story and my ADD kicked in a little bit there, but. Oh, that makes sense. And one thing I wonder is whether or not people are having trouble understanding it because a lot of people in their head compartmentalize like this community is here, this community is here, this community is there. And when you start getting people with mixed race, especially as you get a few generations later, it's harder for people to wrap their head around. And I'm not trying to discount people's ability to understand things, but there are some people out there that just want everything to be simple. These three clusters, these four clusters, right? Very vanilla to use almost a slang term. Yeah, I mean, let me actually use something else. So my first overseas trip was India for three weeks. Being Catholic, I knew the missionaries of charity here. I got to meet Mother Superior. I got told to learn the Indian way. Where I'm going with this is I always could see both sides. But when I learned from a completely different culture to see a different context, it really opened up my mind. Most people in the United States are not forced to do that. We are so insulated. We are so bubbleized. There was a statistic in the Denver Post from like three years ago about what groups had the most mixed. Mm-hmm. African-Americans were least whites, was middle, Hispanics was the most. That shows how pervasive my people are. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know. I remember looking at it. I was like, okay, I know how diversity and changes of ideas is something I is close to my heart. But you're right. I mean, they hear a narrative and they think it is. And then if they don't get their ideas challenged at the same time, going back to what you're saying about mixed race, when you're mixed, you're always being challenged. On all sides. Yep. All sides. And you're dancing always. Let me give you another anecdotal story. Yesterday I was in a coffee shop. It's a small boutique. The guy roasts some of his own beans. I've only gone there like seven times, had some conversations with him. There was a Latina that walked in and her and I started talking and I guess we both lit up. He looked at me and says, you're both demeanors change when you started talking. You have to see that happening. You have to see why. And then you have to see the context of it. And once you understand that level, then you can see why what you're saying about the views might be different. That's interesting. And one thing I want to point out to my listeners is we've had previous episodes where we've discussed the power of travel and the power of travel to give us more different perspectives. If you want to hear more about that, episode 20 with a Mona contractor down in Mumbai, India, offers plenty of great travel packages to that country as well as other nearby countries. Actually, let me jump in one thing. There's travel, but then there's working in a different culture. Not till you work in a different culture where they don't have to be nice to you till you get it. Because mm. you're not the tourist anymore. They don't see you for money. You have to be part of the machine or not. Big difference. Yes. That is a huge difference. And that's what's helped me probably more than anything besides my travel. Travel is important, but working in this culture is worlds apart, figuratively and literally. Very different. Now, you said that the perspectives and the stories of the mixed race community are being underrepresented. You also feel that the Hispanic community is being underrepresented in certain communities, especially your advocacy on behalf of Hispanic entrepreneurship. 
Tell us a little bit about what you observed there and what prompted you to start some of your advocacy as well as Hispanics in tech. So I go back to a Boulder startup week. There was a keynote speaker. He was talking about how diverse was Boulder. Every time I walk in the room, yes, I'm very Anglo-facing, but I always look for the communities of color because, again, going back to where my demeanor changed in the previous conversation, Mm -hmm. I looked around the room and I went, oh, here I am again. (laughs) There's no other Hispanic. (laughs) It's like, I may not stand out like a sore thumb, but I know I stand out like a sore thumb. Just for context, what year was this for Boulder Star Week? 13 to 15. So mid-2010, so just recently half a dozen years ago. Okay. Yeah, if not a little bit sooner. So I challenged him. This was one of the founders of Boulder Startup Week. He says, we have Hispanics in Boulder and they're in Longmont. Longmont at the time was a very, very agricultural community. I never want to see that person again. And I'm holding back my true language. You'll never put my people in the fields. That was segregation and everything. And even though I didn't work the fields, my grandfather made sure I knew where the fields were when we worked. My grandfather drove concrete trucks and he drove the school bus. I rode with the immigrant kids in the summer whose parents and they were working the fields. That story is very close to me. So that being said, it upset me. It still upsets me eight years later with a very much passion. You will never relegate my people to that. If you think you do, we're going to have fun. Fast forward. So I said, what can I do? I was used to looking around and then through my other advocacy, I've been blessed to do a lot of fun things on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. One thing in tech, there's an opportunity to earn real money, life-changing money, if not change trajectories. I look at some of my own family. I have a cousin of a cousin serving life in Canyon. These are the people I know about. I have other cousins that have done felonies and stuff. A kid that bullied me that we became friends with died of an overdose from my grade school. I can tell you these stories. This is a small rural town. These are bad stories, but they happen. Yeah, they are. And they're part of our lived experience. But with going back to Hispanics and tech is I had a little bit of a head start with my father being a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. Other issues came into play. But then I looked at the statistics and President Obama, Candace Owens, and somebody else put it like this is when there's two parents involved, the child of going into the criminal justice system, everything goes down dramatically. Mm -hmm. When you're having two parents involved and you take the next step and they're for more affluent, the chances of the people falling behind becomes less and less. When you look at where Hispanics are working, like currently, if you look at, we are the hardest hit by COVID by percentage. Why are we hit hardest by COVID? We were the frontline workers. We were working the slaughterhouses and et cetera. Yeah, that thing up in Greeley. No, throughout too. Imagine this. Imagine right now Hispanics were 8% of the tech workforce. Mm -hmm. Every percentage difference is gigantic and there's less deaths, less affected. Going back to when I founded Hispanic Six, I kept on learning all these statistics. And I said, you know what? I'm tired. I was tired. My heart hurt. And it's like, I'm going to make a difference. It took about three years. I got thrown underneath the bus. I kept on grinding and I developed good relationships and partnerships. And I founded Hispanic Six. The first event we held three and a half years ago, we had 100 people at it. Oh, wow. That's awesome. For anyone else that started community groups, and we've had some other discussions about community groups because community is another topic I'm very passionate about, which we all need community. 100 is a really fantastic turnout. So that shows that there's interest in tech amongst the Hispanic community. 
Right. That was a general diversity, but it was launched in Hispanic tech. We had a lot of Hispanic speakers. We had yeah. one African-American. We had an oh, Anglo woman who's Molly from the USPTO is yeah. amazing. Then we had three Hispanics up there, too. We had a woman entering. We had the president of the chamber. And we had a woman who made mi- hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. And yeah. it was a Latina and I that moderated the conversation and stuff. So I took a month off and we've been pre-COVID. We're meeting monthly regularly. We could get anywhere from three to 15 people at a meet. Normal monthly meetings are bigger events. Mm-hmm. When we had a job fair. We had like 12 companies there and about 100 people come through. Okay. That's good. DC pitch night, we had well over 100 people and we got a bunch of press. And so three and a half years into this pursuit, are you observing the needle moving as far as more Hispanics in Denver and the surrounding areas becoming interested in tech and more tech companies hiring more Hispanics in tech roles? I see us becoming more involved, but the numbers are so bad that it's hard for me to sing the praises. Maybe it's moving. I think we actually get a lot more lip service than anything. <laughs> I mean, that's not politically correct. It annoys people. I think you give us more lip service than anything. Talk is cheap. Anyone can say anything. And if they don't back it up, then it really doesn't matter. And this reminds me of a common struggle that a lot of people, entrepreneurs and anyone kind of following their passions is going to encounter. You're going to go and sometimes it takes a little while for the result to happen. It takes a little while for any traction to come along. So as the years go by and you hear the lip service and you don't see the needle moving as much as you'd like to see it moving, what keeps you going? What inspires you to say, I need to keep doing this. I need to keep at it. And that sometime in the future, that needle actually is going to move. There's a little bit of a personal way in here. So I've more than likely will never have my own kids. I have kids I'm close to and being an only child. When my paternal grandmother died, Mm -hmm. I was at her funeral. I need to honor the way she lived her life, but there was a lesson there. I remember her eulogy, and she lived a small-town, farmer, country-life eulogy. But I said to myself, that wouldn't be me. The second thing, me and I my kids, if nobody ever remembers my name after this and I impacted lives, I will die a happy man. I, don't get me wrong. I have one kid that carries my name from good friends. I have other kids that, even though I'm an only child, are calling me on. So my memory will at least live on past my generation. No questions asked. But at the same time, when you get to the age, you have to start asking yourself, what's your legacy? Mm -hmm. And seeing where my grandmother and then knowing my father was a pharmacist and the impact that he made on people, I said, I can serve. I can give to others. I'm not perfect at this. I try to make it less than myself. What keeps my fire going is my late grandma, Franco, my Santa. And my voice is breaking right now because I'm a good Mexican man. I will always cry over her. I know through many conversations, I know what she valued the community. I know what she did right in the community. If there's a gift I can give to honor my grandmother is to serve. So, yeah, I mean, as I'm tearing up when I say it. So as I think that's a common pursuit amongst a lot of people who are following their passions. And first of all, a lot of people discover their passions is a common story through this question, what's my legacy? What do I really want to leave in the world? And I hear that question come about a lot when people are stuck in ruts and it's like, okay, I'm not really feeling what I'm doing. I'm kind of lost a little bit. And you'll say to yourself, okay, think 40, 50, 70, however many years you think you have left into the future. And what do I want my legacy to be? And I'm glad that you know it now. 
And also, I think that call to service is quite commonly a motivation for a lot of people. And obviously, you're looking at your community, and it sounds like both jobs and tech, as well as entrepreneurship, to be kind of the a greater part of the future of that community. Well, it's also there's daily reminders. So when you see a Mexican or Hispanic kid, and you see the family, and you can step outside, whether you know the family or not, you could say, the work I'm doing might give that kid more chances than so many of my own family had. You're looking at this young Hispanic family in Colorado or anywhere you might go, because you do go to other places as well. And you're saying this family, you look at them right in the eye and you say, this family is hopefully going to have their voices heard more, going to have more opportunities for VC funding, which we haven't gotten into, but I know that's something that you're passionate about as well, as well as more opportunities for jobs in tech. Jobs in tech. I mean, economic legacy is huge. Mine's not there yet, but I've put myself in a good position. Ability to give to the family. I mean, my culture, family is very relative, but we'll call it a, a personal cousin, FEMA, very quickly. But there's words have meaning. And where I'm going with this is we know we're all Hispanics. We know we're all connected. And the future is going to get us sooner or later. I mean, that's a proverbial saying. Yep. But it's like, what can we do now to give others an opportunity we didn't? And also yep. the people who helped put us here. How can we honor them? I mean, there's a give to get in this community overall. But when you're trying to make something that's going to be intangible, and I sell software sales. I know about the idea of selling intangible. You have to ask yourself, what if I make a difference in one life? What if I help out people and their kids are? And if you can look at a family you don't know and take a moment, you remove your sense of self from what you're doing and you build a bigger way. Wow. I may not talk to the family. I look at it and saying, remind myself, I'm trying to maybe give that kid a chance. Or you see a kid come out of prison. I talked to this one Latina who I met retail up north, and I started talking to her. Now I'm connecting her with somebody at a coding school. Turing, a fantastic partner with us. If I talk to her the rest of my life, great. If I don't, and she goes on to Turing, and she changes her life, that's a success story that I can be happier for. And they may yes. never know my name. That's fantastic. And it's so good to set yourself up with a situation where you can almost consistently put yourself reminders. I know a lot of people like to write things on their walls or carry around pictures of people that they really care about. I think what a lot of people need in their lives with their pursuits, especially because any pursuit that's in any way outside the box, to use a kind of generic term, is going to encounter resistance. It's going to encounter struggles. It's going to encounter some amount of sacrifice. And one of the challenges is getting through that sacrifice so that you can really make a difference. And the people that get through the sacrifice are the people that oftentimes make the biggest difference. I attend and love Startup Week and events like that because I love being around those people that are making and have made the sacrifice to make the difference. But it is good to have a constant reminder because it is easy to get bogged down into the details and some of the nitty gritties, especially some of the setback. Almost everyone that tries to do something is going to encounter some, I'd say, not so positive statements from people, for lack of a better way to put it. Some things that people may say innocently, but in a very risk averse way that might discourage them. And so having that, knowing what people are counting on you, and that's another great thing. You see these little kids, you're like, these people are counting on me. And that's another great way to look. They're counting on others too. Yeah. But it's like somebody's got to try. So I'll tell you a story about my grandfather. So my grandfather would be probably 115 this year. Oh, wow. So he grew up in the depression. Okay. 
he did not have much past grade school education. He told me his story many times. My Mexican grandfather, I would sit at his foot and hear all the stories. And now 40 plus years later, I'm retelling them. Yeah. (laughs) And I see the people, he worked hard. There's interesting legacy there, but I go back to some of the stories where people gave him an opportunity. He busted his butt. Yeah. He was a hard worker. He made sure the rest of us were hard workers. But I see how people changed his perspective, which kept on going. You can see the legacy of that, where that vision is some of the things I learned. It's like you see where it does. But also important now in the world of tattoos, social influencers, Yep, there's so much. I am this. Look at me. I'm happy when I do things behind the scenes that people never see, mm-hmm. that I don't put out on social media. So when I'm looking at those kids, I'm thinking in that context because somebody did it for my grandfather. How can I repay the favor 100 years later? That's an interesting point as well, because we've had some other discussions here about social media. Do you feel like social media is having an influence on people? One of the things that I often concern myself about is the culture of instant gratification. And social media kind of facilitates that in a way where most of these really important pursuits, the ones that are really going to build a legacy, the ones that are going to really build kind of self-actualization, a sense of pride are ones that are not instant gratification. They take perseverance, they take day in and day out work and and persistence. Do you feel like that social media is kind of having that influence on people's minds in that respect, as well as in the more I'm looking for external validation, as opposed to the internal validation that you're talking about, like, you know, where you understand that this person's life or a whole bunch of people's lives have more opportunities because of something you put forth into the world. Let me ask you this. Where I'm framing the question, let me ask it with another question. All right. What's considered long-form journalism right now? Long-form journalism? 3,000 words, maybe? Yeah, I know if my blogs go above 800 words, they get less reads, so. Right. So the answer is yes, because people don't go down. They always want the skim of the milk, and they're not trained to look down. Going back to when you're mixed race and where form is everything, when you're mixed, you have to look at the more of the details and you have to be able to get the skim of the milk, hopefully that they didn't get some of the cream at the bottom. And then you have to kind of put all the textures and stuff together there. Yes, social media hurts us on that because they only hear one story and they expect everybody to be the same because we're so cloistered. Again, going back to where is a mixed race going to be? I pray it's not bloody literally, but it's going to be hard path. So yeah, social media is a completely different story. Well, what it sounds to me in general is like this need to dive deeper. And one of the easiest things to do when you meet someone is to make a quick judgment about who they are or get what I usually refer to as the three bullet point summary of a person or of a group of people, whatever. But it sounds like with respect to more people, regardless, but especially with respect to mixed race people, it requires a little bit more attention, a little bit more active listening to understand, okay, there's a lot more depth to people than we often assign to in our kind of quick diversion of attention culture these days. Most people have no clue. Now, there's different skill sets that happen when you're in the mix. You can ask different level questions because there's different level instincts because you've lived at that granular level, but you're right. Yes. Because we don't fit in a box. The box is like, I've been told once if I choose to identify as Hispanic, doesn't get much more insulting than that. I don't have a choice about my genetics. I do not have a choice about my family history. Did not have a choice about my grandfather being first generation. I did not have a choice. And tell him 
If you choose to identify with somebody else, say, yeah. When you're mixed, you're dead on. Even when you're a person of, like, say, straight Hispanic, they may be first generation. You have to understand that. There's gigantic differences in generational, too, in the stories. Is, and those nuances tell you a lot. Yeah. If you had a thousand of those conversations, you get it quicker. But most people have only had lucky to have five of them in their life. So first of all, not really hearing the stories of straight up Hispanics, not understanding the diverse, how it's so much different, Puerto Rican, Venezuelan, Cuban, Mexican, all that stuff, and also not hearing the voices of the mixed race community. What do you think people are generally kind of losing out on by not hearing these stories and not kind of diving deeper into them? For mine, our heart, our real emotion, our true selves. And the Hispanic community, if you take a moment, you'll see us talking over each other, kind of yelling at each other. It's not yelling. You'll see us one woman fighting, and then you see each giving each other a kiss on the cheek. It takes patience. You have to have a different eye to get that true heart. A true heart. I mean, that's I'm trying to grab a word. Our authentic self, I think I've used that. Our vulnerability and the beauty mm-hmm. of it and the passion and the commitment and all the fun craziness. I'm dating a Puerto Rican, an amazing woman, smarter than me. Mm-hmm. Trust me, there's big differences there. Yeah. And when she shows her heart, it's different than I do. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> there is a certain amount of sadness that I encounter myself when I think about people that can't be their authentic selves for one reason or another. Our work culture has prevented that for a long time. As people kind of bring their true authentic selves, what do you see kind of in the future as that I mean, I'm not trying to be like mindlessly optimistic, but as it looks like eventually we'll come to pass more and more, what do you see about that changing the world around us? When you go back to almost, I touched on it at the beginning, you talk about Darwin. Darwin survival of the fittest were people who were genetically diverse that learned to adapt. Right now, in some ways, we're getting more genetic diverse, but we're less diverse because we're so polarized. We are so siloed. Where we're getting for, I'll say we got more creativity. We'll have more ingenuity. We'll have art. And I struggle with this because I always want to be pure. I always want the cultures to be. But our perspectives will change. We'll have to learn more about others' history. So it's almost Darwinism in the best form. But I'm also scared about some things that I'm afraid we'll lose some of our authentic history to. So it's double-edged in the ideal form, I'll tell you the food will get better because like a good friend of mine wrote a James Beard award-winning cookbook called the history of soul food. It talks about the influence of the slave dysphoria on the food we eat. I think I've seen him speak somewhere, but yeah. And if you look at, I mentioned in the book. So when I've cooked with him multiple times and when you look at that, I think the thing that's so interesting is you can see some of the foods that the slaves brought with them of how it's been integrated from anywhere from Chile up to here in Colorado. You see the influence. Mm-hmm. The same goes as we become more ethnic diverse. Food is kind of a microcosm of where everything's going to go. So all those fusion restaurants that we see popping up is kind of a predecessor. It's how to our that. culture will be. Hopefully we won't lose the authentic because there, there always will be Mexican. There always should be truly Peruvian where some of us walk in and says, this is a poser. Yeah. If you're going to play fusion, <laughs> be fusion. If you're going to, it's like when I walk into a Mexican restaurant, I can tell you how good it is by the smell of it. Tortillas, mm-hmm. I'm a snob. I'll tell you, tortillas yeah. and stuff, green chili, 
we get into it's like, yeah, don't tell me you're giving me chicken green chili or vegetarian green chili. There's green chili, there's one and only, and leave me alone. Well, it reminds me of one of the challenges of our time because we have this real divide between people like to refer to as the globalists and the nationalists. And what we're really looking for in a way is a way to combine both where we get the benefits of knowing each other, benefits of those cross-culture being open to conversation, but also while still maintaining our cultural roots and maintaining some of the things that are instinctly ours. And I think about that kind of growing up in the Italian-American community on Long Island, we have our own set of cultural, that five course meal with the antipasta and all that stuff. So, and I wouldn't <laughs> tell me when I'm coming over. <laughs> I'll help you cook. Tell me when I'm coming over. <laughs> yeah. Those are fantastic. Always big families and stuff like that. So very quiet. It oh, doesn't, yeah, no fights. yeah. No fights. No one ever fights. And they wouldn't even want you to ever like take out your headphones. As you say, there's good and bad about everything. It would be really sad to see that disappear. Oh, I mean, hope it doesn't. I mean, and I fight it. Uh, it was like, there was a reason why I go over to Chubby's at 38th on the Palm, besides being close to the family. I need to go back to my people. I need to go back to my roots. On that thread, so my first overseas trip was India for three weeks. Not buying Kolkata. Kolkata is that intense. I have a good friend. He's Malaysian. So we were both over there. Muslim, awesome man. I'm so glad. It's funny. I would go to the home house every day for mass. He'd be saying his prayers. That's where we would touch base and we go eat breakfast together. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> awesome story. But I was processing, but I had nobody that I could talk to with that cultural context to defrag and work through and ask about it. I had friends. I still have friends from them. But going to where you're going, the globalist versus the nationalist, the national is important, but so is the globalist. You're right. It's in between, but you don't want to lose that national identity because there's a thread that goes there too. Politically, it's a different one. I'm a big USA fan because there's a reason why everyone wants to come here and start a business. And there's a reason why my people are coming across the border in many different ways to start a business too. So non-political, yes, there is. Political is a different story. I don't want to really get into that. Yeah, well, definitely. I, I do want to say, though, it is fantastic to see people come to this country to start a business. The initial catch line for this episode you had given me was equity through economics, the economic advantage that it provides if getting Hispanics in tech, Hispanics in entrepreneurship to the point where you're heard, you're leveled up, and you all gain the opportunity will have an economic benefit for everybody in this great country. So do you see this unfolding? And if not, what do you think we should all be doing to make this unfold? I was just at a Techstars event, and they said diversity equals dollars. And I've said demographics determine equal destiny. I was thinking of a good t-shirt if we were going to do one for Hispanics and deck. So what it will be is demographics equal destiny equals the dollar sign. It's coming no matter what. Now, how you help out the people in there determines all of our future. I go back to Denver being 30 plus percent Hispanic. Mm-hmm. You don't see us in positions of power. You don't see us in the boardroom. We're the least represented in the boardroom. You only see us as 8% of the total tech force of it. Mm -hmm. If people want to make a difference, and you see us three to one compared to whites in the judicial system, three to one, four to one, I think I read, yeah, which is less than others, but it's still a pretty high number. And the numbers will scale up because of our general percentages. What people need to be aware of it is... Going back to, again, what we touched on, things are changing. 
their lens needs to change. Their perspectives need to change. They have to look around and saying, if I don't help out these small businesses, get to know them, not under my terms, by through their lens and how they'll let me help them and be patient enough to earn their trust, everybody may not be in a great spot. Because when the greatest number is earning less per capita, that's a drag down on everybody else. Simple economics. Economics is the equalization game. It's a mean game. There's a reason why we use standard deviations in economics. So what you're going through is like people need to look at it like PPE loans. So Elon Musk's brother got $3 million loan for his restaurant here. Many people in my community could not get any. There's some systematic problems here. That's a telltale sign. That's something that should have people been in the street raising hell about. People need to ask themselves is like, where do I want my kids to be? Do I want my kids to stand better chances? Great. I better help out the Hispanic community because they're going to be, will be bigger. And if we're doing better financially, everybody else is. So rising ships. I usually give this opportunity to every one of my guests. If people want to get a hold of you or want to talk to you about any of your initiatives, if anyone wants to join Hispanic in Tech or join any of your other advocacies on behalf of the Hispanic entrepreneurial community, how would someone best go about contacting you? Via LinkedIn. And my personal email is jamesafoy at gmail. That's F-O-Y. Yes. And then on Meetup, I run a group called San Juan Tech Meetup, which hopefully I'll be moving to San Juan soon. I run Hispanics and Tech Meetup. Or like I said, LinkedIn, there's my email or there's two places. Sounds really sunny and pleasant, except for when there's a hurricane coming through, of course. Or an earthquake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, without a doubt, that was pretty messed up too. Hopefully the island is recovering and everything. The South, no. The North, yes. The South (laughs) is still grumbling. Ooh, that is rough. Any last messages that you want to entail onto our listeners today as far as their own personal pursuits, how to kind of go through, overcome the struggle, overcome the sacrifice, some of these setbacks, as well as how to kind of approach some of these issues that we were talking about today? Let me answer in two parts. So like I mentioned, I'm Catholic. I've served many years at my basilica. I got to know the local missionaries of charity here. Before I went to India, I was blessed enough to meet Mother Superior of the Missionaries, Jerry, which was a completely different story. I was told one thing, and this is not politically correct. I was told to learn the Indian way. Mm -hmm. How that translates to our conversation is you have to learn the ability to see through others' eyes, not your context. You have to learn to see through others' eyes. So for the other communities that may be involved, one thing I'm proud I do, and I'm not great at it. I think I can always be better. But one thing I tested myself. So there's a gigantic Vietnamese community here. Yep. I go from India to Vietnamese. This is how all over the place I am. Every Sunday after mass, they have a feed, a giant community feed. I learned to use chopsticks there for four years. I went there every Sunday and sat by myself <laughs> yep. with families. People barely said the word. I was the only whitish person there. Now I'm invited to help them cook on Sunday. Oh, wow. So going back to what the nuns of the missionaries of charity said, learn the Indian way, learn to see other people's eyes. And it takes practice. It takes work. It's not going to be easy. Now, if I'm talking to underserved communities, Hispanics and black, our heart is our superpower. Our grit is our superpower. Our story is our superpower. You will be standing alone many, many, many times. You will feel like you're the only person in the room. That happens, but don't be afraid to keep on looking. Don't be afraid to get a reminder of where you came from. It's happened to me. Remember what you're working towards. 
lose the sense of self too. realizing what you're doing is making a difference to other people that helps you keep the fire going. That is an amazing message. Hopefully we can all take it into our pursuits and hopefully we can all bring our pursuits to fruition through the hard work and grit that it's inevitably going to take whoever you are out there, whatever your pursuit is, whatever has ignited your passions. James, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes and sharing your story from your perspective with everyone, as well as some encouragement for everyone listening. And those listening, tune in again for more Actions Antidotes episodes, where we'll be talking with more people with interesting stories, interesting pursuits that are making a difference in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.